The scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Luke, chapter 23, verses 1 to 5. Book of Luke, chapter, chapter 23, verses 1 to 5. On the Red Bibles, uh, you're going to find that scripture on page 883, 883. And it reads, then the whole assembly arose and led him off Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We have found this man sovereignty in our nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar and claims to be Messiah, a king. So Pilate asked Jesus, Are you the king of the Jews? You have said so, Jesus replied. Then Pilate announced to the priest and the crowd, I found no basis for a charge against this man. But they instead, but they insisted, he stirs up the people all over Judea by his teaching. He started in Galilee and has come all the way here. May God bless his word. If you're like me, for many years, I gave a lot of attention to the scourging and the crucifixion of Jesus, but unfortunately I didn't spend very much time examining and looking at the trial, the kangaroo court that Jesus endured. Let's talk about that for just a little while this morning. Our lesson this morning is divided into two parts. The first part, we're going to examine the foul trial. And the second part, we're going to consider four truths. Let's begin in Acts chapter, I'm sorry, Genesis chapter 2 and thinking about, you don't necessarily need to turn there, but thinking about the very beginning in which we find the father of falsehoods enter into the scene. Satan lies to Eve and mankind falls. And the plan for Jesus and his eventual mockery of a trial is set into motion. The section in which we're going to look at the various, uh, the foul trial, is going to be broken into five scenes, kind of like a, a drama unfolding for us, if you will. So as we think about this first scene, I want you to, to see the scene of the selfish accuser. The selfish accuser. We said in Genesis chapter 2 that the, the father of falsehoods enter, enters into the scene, and he lies to Eve and tempts mankind, mankind falls, and Jesus' plan is enacted, or Jesus' need is brought into full effect. And some 4,000 years later, he, this Satan, is still at work when Satan entered Judas in Luke chapter 22 and verse number 3. If you'll notice with me in these different accounts of the Gospels, you'll see that there's going to be a, a different times where we're going to have to turn to different sections of the Gospels to get the full picture. And so if, as we turn to one Gospel account, you may mark in your Bible with a, with a piece of paper or some, of some sort so that you can turn back there in a little bit. But let's look at Luke chapter 22 and verse number 3. Then Satan entered Judas, surnamed Iscariot, who was numbered among the twelve. So he went his way and conferred with the chief priests and captains how he might betray him to them. I want us to recognize that this scene, 
that this whole ordeal of this foul trial begins with Judas's poor defense against the influence of Satan. It's not necessarily perhaps to be presumed that Satan literally physically entered into Judas's heart, but perhaps that his influence, Satan's influence overcame Judas. And whereas Judas had the most holy and righteous man of all time before him, he allows the lowest of lows, Satan, to pull him down. Verses 4 through 6 of Luke chapter 22, Judas conspires with religious leaders. Whereas Judas had in his possession the king of kings and the lord of lords, he foolishly traded it away for some 30 pieces of silver. Some estimate, uh, estimate that this amount could have been as little as about 90 U.S. dollars. Some estimates say much more, but regardless, the value was far out of proportion for what Jesus was worth. In fact, some scholars allude to an account in Zechariah in which the, the value of a slave was estimated to be at about 30 shekels of silver. And so, in essence, Judas equated Jesus with the value of a slave. Judas then leads the leaders to Jesus and identifies him with a kiss as he is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane in Luke chapter 22, verses 47 through 48. And then the true kangaroo court begins when the first finger of blame is pointed at Jesus through the mockery of a kiss. An action that would indicate loyalty and friendship. And yet here, Judas was betraying him. I want us to, as we begin considering this kangaroo court, this mockery of a trial, I want us to step back and ask ourselves some background questions or look at some background history. So at this point, I want us to pause briefly and consider some things from Old Testament history. If anyone ever tells you that the Old Testament doesn't, doesn't help your understanding of the New Testament, then this perhaps is something that they've never seen before. Because while though, yes, most anyone can tell you that the sentencing that Jesus went through and the, the mockery of a trial that he went through was unfair, when you stop to notice these things that, that the Jews did to Jesus and compare them with what took place or what was said in the Old Testament, the old law, you begin to notice just how outrageous and just how terrible of a mockery this trial was. Turn your Bibles with me to Deuteronomy chapter number 16. Deuteronomy chapter number 16, as we look at this particular section, you'll notice that there were some expectations when it came to the old law about how justice was to be served. In Deuteronomy chapter number 16, verse number 18 through 20, we see the Jewish system of justice that is initiated. In this particular section, you'll notice some things that seem very similar to kind of how the, the justice system is set up here in the United States. Not, not uh, altogether that much different in thinking about how many of our, of our country's principles were founded upon Judeo-Christian values. As we see from Deuteronomy chapter 16, verses 18 through 20, we'll see that these expectations are laid out. The Bible says, You shall appoint judges and officers in all your gates, or in all of your various cities, in other words, which the Lord your God gives you according to your tribes, and they shall judge the people with just judgment. You shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality, nor, notice, take a bribe. For a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and twists the words of the righteous. 
You shall follow what is altogether just, that you may live and inherit the land which the Lord your God is giving you. Notice again that they were to appoint judges and officers, that they were to judge righteous judgment, that they were not to be partial, that they were not to distort justice or to take a bribe, or, to, or the fact that they were to only pursue ju- uh, justice. In Jerusalem... What we find here in the, in the scene in which we're looking at today with regard to this, the trial of Jesus, we see that very likely Jesus went before what is known as the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was composed most likely of about seven, of 70 men made up of 24 chief priests, 24 elders, 23 scribes, and the high priest making 71. So they had that odd number including that high priest. In fact, the governing body of Jerusalem was the supreme ruling body. If you notice from Deuteronomy chapter number 16, we we saw that they were to appoint judges and officers in all of their cities, that that these were to be some of the lower uh, Sanhedrin, if you will, and then ultimately in Jerusalem there would be this upper Sanhedrin that would be kind of like our supreme court, that if if the local areas uh, could not uh, handle a matter of justice or if there was an appeal to that decision-making process, that it would then be passed up to this high Sanhedrin. And so we have before us this morning Jesus facing what should be the supreme court, if you will, what should be those that should be of high regard and of high reputation, that they shouldn't be individuals that should stoop to the low levels in which we find them. The Sanhedrin was set up such that, according to to history, that anyone accused of a wrongdoing would be guaranteed, number one, a, a public trial. In other words, there would be no hidden or secret uh, clandestine trials. Everything was to be open and exposed, that, that no one could be framed or railroaded into some kind of execution or some kind of penalty without just trial taking place. So there was to be, number one, public trial. There was to be, number two, a guarantee of self-defense. That is, there was to be a defender to stand before someone that is accused. There was to be someone who provided a defense for that individual, that he would have the right to bring in defense of himself in the mouth of other witnesses who could participate in the trial. And thirdly, not only was there to be a trial that was public, and not only were they to have someone that stood as a self-defender or someone, uh, they were to have self-defense and have someone stand before them as a defender, but third, They were also not to be convicted of anything unless they were convicted or proven to be guilty by at least two or three witnesses. Additionally, if we were to look at our Old Testament history, we would find in Deuteronomy chapter 19, verses 16 through 19, that false witnessing was so serious a crime that those or anyone who gave false testimony was punished with the very penalty that the false witness sought to bring upon the person he witnessed against. In other words... If you came into the court to witness that someone had committed a murder and you were giving false witness that you were not telling the truth, that you would pay the death penalty yourself because whatever penalty you sought for an individual, you would then pay the death penalty or or the very penalty that you sought for that individual. And not only that, the witness who witnessed against the person which brought, uh, which brought about the death penalty were the ones who had to cast the first stone in the execution. You recall this in which Jesus uh, picks up or, or stoops down and writes on the ground and says, let him that, was, that is without sin cast the first stone at this woman that was accused. And so that was the custom. That was the, the tradition that the one that brought the, the testimony against someone and accused someone would be the one that would have to uh, throw that first stone or, or, or cast that first stone. And, and this was to dissuade individuals 
to, from, from being people that would, would bring false witness or false testimony so that, that not only if they brought false testimony that they would be charged for that false testimony but also so that if they were the ones that were throwing that stone that they would also be charged of murder. We find this from Deuteronomy chapter 17 and verse 7. And so if we stop and think about what is, what is set up in the uh, Judeo uh, principles with regard to these, uh, the system of justice, you see before you even begin to look at in totality the trial of Jesus, you see that these individuals are setting themselves up for failure, that they are, are breaking the law and they're doing things that are just ultimately terribly wrong. And so we have... Our first scene, the scene of the selfish accuser, the scene of the one that was, was trading Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. And then we enter into a second scene, the scene of the deceitful witnesses. Turning your Bibles to the book of John, John chapter number 18. In John chapter number 18, after Judas comes and betrays Jesus with a kiss, he's brought to the house of of Annas. Annas was the former high priest. In verse number 12, we find that the detachment of troops and the captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him, and they led him away to Annas first, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. Now it was Caiaphas who advised the Jews that it was expedient that one man should die for the people. There are questions as to why Jesus was brought before Annas first. After all, as we said, he was the former high priest. He wasn't actually the, the standing high priest at the time. History seems to indicate that, his, that this position of high priest was held from some uh, A.D. 6 to A.D. 6, uh, to AD 15. But that even after he was no longer in office, that this Annas perhaps still had and held a tremendous amount of sway. And so in, in my estimation, it seems that perhaps they brought Jesus to the house of Annas, perhaps as a way to be calculated in their moves, to take Jesus to one who carried a lot of sway, so that before they would even bring him before the Sanhedrin in, in totality, that, that they would have perhaps the, the backing of, of this man, Annas. Turning your Bibles to the book of Matthew. Look at Matthew chapter number 26, verses 57 through 58. After Jesus is taken to the house of Annas, then he's brought before Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin at Caiaphas' palace. Notice verses 57 through 58. Now when evening had come, sorry, Matthew chapter 26, verses 57 through 58. And those who laid hold of Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and elders were assembled. But Peter followed him at a distance to the high priest's courtyard, and he went in and sat with the servants to see the end. Now the chief priests, the elders, and all the council sought, sought false testimony against Jesus to put him to death. Rather than use proper decorum and hold Jesus' examinations before an official council out in public, they instead take Jesus to the palace of Caiaphas, to the house of Caiaphas, in the middle of the night. Don't forget that. Realize that they've already taken Jesus from the garden in the middle of the night, that Judas betrayed him there, and that they lead him to the house of, of Annas, and then from there to the house of Caiaphas. And this is all taking place in the, in the shade of night, the darkness of night, if you will, that this isn't out in the open and for the public to see. And then they bring in false witnesses, deceitful witnesses. Notice 59 through 61, verses 59 through 61. Now the chief priests, the elders, and all the council sought, sought false testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. 
Even though many false witnesses came forward, they found none. But at last, two false witnesses came forward and said, This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. Because his accusers had nothing to go on and nothing to honestly charge Jesus with, they instead brought into the scene orchestrated liars. Can you see it? These religious men of the Sanhedrin, these individuals that were supposed to be of the religious elite, that were supposed to be followers of God, they orchestrate these accusations or these witnesses against Jesus. They're so incensed by their rage that they turn to seemingly random strangers in the street to ask, hey, do you have anything to accuse Jesus of? No? Well, how about, how about you? you don't, how, about, how about you? And eventually they finally come to, again, notice two witnesses that say the same thing. They say that, that Jesus said, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and to build it into three, in three days. Remember, the Jewish system of justice required that, that anyone accused had to be uh, testified against by at least two or three witnesses. And so they, they're trying to obey the law and they're trying to stick with what their system of justice says. All the while, they are doing these things so calcula- in, in a calculated manner so that they can overthrow Jesus and, and take away the power that he is starting to gain from the following of people that, that he has. Think about this. Jesus is arrested... And then they look for witnesses to charge him. But then in Matthew chapter 26, verses 65 through 66, we see that Jesus is condemned to death on the charge of blasphemy. And the high priest tore his clothes, saying, He has spoken blasphemy. What further need do we have of witnesses? Look, how do you, look now, you have heard his blasphemy. What do you think? They answered and said, He is deserving of death. One author said that the blasphemy which the Pentateuch spoke of is a literal cursing of God or a direct defiance of him. Very different than what we find Jesus doing here. We don't find Jesus literally cursing God. But this was what was found in the Pentateuch in Leviticus chapter 24 in which the incident which gave rise to the statute indicates the character of the offense of blasphemy in Jewish law was that this half Egyptian had cursed God. And so this accusation of Jesus speaking blasphemy is not even consistent again with what was found in Levitical law. Turn your Bibles to the book of Luke. In the book of Luke we find in chapter number 22 that at this point it seems that they blindfolded Jesus and began to slap Jesus in the face. Luke chapter 22 verses 63 through 64 Now the men who held Jesus mocked him and beat him. And having blindfolded him, they struck him on the face and asked him, saying, Prophesy, who is the one who struck you? Do you see it? Picture this. Jesus is blindfolded. Our Lord and Savior, our Master, blindfolded to where he cannot see. Someone comes up from the side and pops Jesus in the ear. Pops Jesus in the side of the face. Hey, Jesus, can you tell me which one of us is it, was it that, that actually hit you? If you're really who you say you are, you should be able to tell us who it is that hits you. Laughter ensues. Then the next morning, the Sanhedrin formally, formally condemns Jesus to make it legal. In Luke chapter 22, verses 66 through 71, as soon as it was day... The elders of the people 
both chief priests and scribes came together and led him into their council, saying, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will by no means believe, and if I also ask you, you will by no means answer me or let me go. Hereafter the Son of Man will sit on the right hand of the power of God. Then they all said, Are you then the Son of God? So he said to them, You rightly say that I am. And they said, What further testimony do we need? For we have heard it ourselves from his mouth. One man said that according to the Talmud, the Sanhedrin is forbidden or was forbidden from convening between the time of the evening and morning sacrifice. And so they waited until the morning to formally condemn Jesus so that they would not be again breaking the law. But interestingly enough, according to the Mishnah, Jewish law stated that they were not to convene and trial on the eve of the Sabbath. And so they were breaking the law anyway. So even though they waited till morning so as not to formally charge Jesus, they ended up formally charging Jesus on the Sabbath day and ended up breaking the law anyway. And so we now enter into our third scene. This scene being the premature advancement to Pilate. Pilate was only to be summoned if there was a, if there was a matter of, of justice that needed to be sought with regard to the national security or national safety. It wasn't to be, he wasn't to be summoned with regard to religious matters, religious disputes or disagreements in that regard, but rather that if there was someone that was actually in uh, a danger to the, the, the threat of Rome or was a threat to Rome at large, then, then maybe then he could be summoned. But we see here that now that Jesus is handed over or led to Pontius Pilate. Notice chapter 23, verse 1. The whole multitude of them arose and led him to Pilate, and they began to accuse him, saying, notice what they accuse him of, we found this fellow perverting the nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar, saying that he himself is Christ, a king. In another clear act of orchestration by the Jewish leaders, very specific charges were brought so that their hands would be innocent of the blood of Jesus. As we said, the Roman government would only intervene in criminal affairs when matters of treason or civil disobedience or incitement to revolution or attacks against Caesar were involved. Otherwise, local administration was conducted by local officials and the regular courts of the conquered nations. Roman authorities were not involved in every criminal proceeding throughout the vast empire, but when they brought Jesus before Pilate, Jesus' opponents accused him of blasphemy, but since they would not, did not want to execute him themselves, they created charges of treason against Jesus. This way, the trial would be brought before Pontius Pilate, and in their minds, he and the Romans would be responsible for Jesus' death and not them. They're orchestrating this whole thing. Chapter 23, verses 4 through 5, Pilate find no, finds no fault in Jesus and tries to let Jesus go, but the Jews insist. Verses 6 through 7, Pilate hears that Jesus was from Galilee, so he sends him to Herod, since that was Herod's jurisdiction. With a pass-the-buck mentality, Jesus is sent on to Herod, and so now the spectacle continues as Jesus has moved from Pilate's location to Herod's location. At this point, it's the morning, recall, and perhaps the hustle and bustle of the day is now in full swing. After all this, Jesus is brought before Herod, and then Herod, almost adding salt to the wound, desires Jesus to perform a miracle. Notice chapter 23, verse 8. Now when Herod saw Jesus, he was exceedingly glad, for he had desired for a long time to see him, Jesus, because he had heard many things about him, and he hoped to see some miracle done by him. Seems pretty clear that Herod wasn't interested in the kingdom of Jesus the kingdom of Christ, but just the entertainment that Jesus might provide. 
Remember, this is the man that had John the Baptist's head brought on a platter. This is not a nice guy. You can almost see Herod sitting there. Oh, Jesus, Jesus, I've been wanting to see you. I've been hearing a lot about you. Will you please perform a miracle for me? In kind of a sarcastic tone. Cutting down and tearing down at Jesus even more. And so we have this next scene before us, in which is just purely a spectacle, a pure spectacle. When Jesus refuses Herod's advances, Herod's men begin mocking him and mockingly put a robe on Jesus' back in chapter 23, verse 11. Remember our assumption from the previous verse that perhaps Herod was just interested in the entertainment? Seems to be firmed up for us in the sense that they're mocking him and the idea of him being a king and they put a gorgeous robe on his back. And then now presumably still wearing this mocking robe, Jesus is then led back through the streets, back to Pilate. Our Lord and Savior, our King, wearing a facetious garment, facetious robe. As the drama unfolds, we perhaps now realize even more the true spectacle that the sham of a trial was. Sure, Jesus was certainly falsely accused. Many people do a lot of things for money. And sure, the Jewish leaders were jealous of Jesus and the following that he had. Many people do a lot of things for attention. But now on our hands, we see these people just playing games with our Lord and Savior. They're popping him in the ear, saying, tell us which one it was that hit you. They're putting a robe on his back and leading him through the streets. Spectacle among the people. As a result of this incident, Pilate and Herod become friends. Chapter 23, verse 12 tells us. Obviously, we don't know what it is exactly that caused Pilate and Herod to hit it off, but it seems that it was at the expense of Jesus. And that what they consider to be something of entertainment value, their enmity ceases and their friendship ensues. Again, after finding no fault in Jesus, Pilate, in consideration of the fact that Herod, too, had found no fault, decides to let Jesus go. Luke chapter 23, verses 13 through 16. And then we have our final scene, the scene of unequal substitution. At this point, Pilate tests their dedication to their endeavor and attempts to shut it down by offering a hardened criminal, Barabbas. In John chapter 18, verse 39, this man Barabbas was a man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and that he had started a mob in the city and for murder. And this individual, Barabbas, was actually someone that was a threat to Rome as an insurrectionist, as someone that was committing treason. And here he is exchanging, offering Barabbas to be exchanged for Jesus. And rather than tempering the tumult, the riot increases as the chief priests and elders continue fanning the flames and urge the now growing crowd to plead for Barabbas. He asks them, which one do you want, Jesus or Barabbas? And the ones that are the chief priests and elders, the religious elite, again, instead of asking that Jesus be kept out of prison and that Barabbas would stay in prison, they then trade him for Barabbas. Just days before, no doubt, some in the crowd had fanned him with palm leaves, shouting Hosanna. And we now have a, witnessed a mob mentality shift the public persuasion of Jesus from Messiah 
to maniac, from savior to seditionist, from lord to lawbreaker. The crowd is insistent and cried with a loud voice, crucify him, crucify him. A third time, Pilate tries to release Jesus. He says, why? What evil has he done? But their insistent demands prevailed. In Matthew chapter 27, the vitriol was so great that they were even willing to include the guilt upon their children. They said, his blood be upon us and our children. And so Pilate delivered Jesus to be crucified. Matthew 27, 26. We know the rest of the story. In fact, for all that is said about the trial and conviction, Mark, Mark's account makes this very simple statement in Mark 15, 25. And it was the third hour, and they crucified him. We have at large for us a large amount of information about the trial of Jesus, and Mark just simply says, the third hour was, and they crucified him. So what do we make of these events? Four brief truths, and the lesson will be yours. Number one, we should take extra special care in the judgments that we make about and accusations that we levy against others. Recall with me where we started this morning in the process of examining the trial. We began at the beginning of Luke 22 where we observed Satan entering into Jesus. We said at this time that Satan likely did not literally enter Judas, but uh, entered into Judas, did not literally enter into Judas, but that his influence overwhelmed him. And we ought to recognize <clears throat> that judgments and accusations that we might make are oftentimes from a place of the devil. That the, that the things that we desire, the selfish things that we want, and the accusations that we make or the, the judgments that we make about other people all come from a place of Satan and his influence. The events that we've considered this morning remind us that Satan has already been defeated, but his influence still sends a shockwave through our world today. And we need to be careful that judgments and accusations that we make are not influenced by the motivations of Satan, such as greed and jealousy, prejudice. Ultimately, the chief accuser, Satan, has already received the judgment. In fact, the same word used to describe Jesus being bound by the chief priests is used by John in reference to Satan being bound and tossed into the bottomless pit in Revelation chapter 20, verse 2. We would do well to remember the teaching of Jesus from Matthew chapter 7. Not that judgments are, to be, are not to be made, but they are to come from a place of righteousness. And so we ought not to find ourselves in the position of the accusers of the Sanhedrin, of those that are the religious elite in which we strive to have things work in our favor by accusing others of things that are wrong. Secondly, when we fail to proclaim Jesus as Lord, we stand on the sidelines like Peter. We skipped over this section. We, we noticed that Peter denied Jesus three times as Jesus prophesied and predicted that he would. And sometimes we ask ourselves, how could Peter, a follower of, the, of our Lord, there in that day with the opportunity to stand before Jesus and to defend him, how could he, how could he deny Jesus? We would say, if I was there, I would, I would stand up for Jesus and I would defend him and I would say, that's not what Jesus was about and you're making all these things up and that's not true. If I were there, I would have just done this. But anytime we fail to proclaim Jesus as Lord today when we ought to, 
when we deny Jesus before men today, when we don't stand up and say, I'm a follower of Jesus, when others are accosting and, and accusing Jesus and, and saying things that are evil about Jesus, when we don't stand up for Jesus today, we might as well be like Peter was on that fateful evening. Matthew chapter 10 verse 32 says, Whosoever therefore shall confess me before men, him will I confess also before my Father which is in heaven. But whoever shall deny me before men, him will I also deny before my Father which is in heaven. Number three, when we are falsely accused and ridiculed, we have a high priest who can sympathize with the feelings of our infirmities. How do we handle ourselves when we're falsely accused? Notice how Jesus handled himself. He said, put down the sword. Jesus held his peace. Tell us whether you're the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said, Thou hast said. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Jesus knew these things were part of the master plan, and Jesus knew truth was on his side. Jesus knew his efforts would glorify the Father and that many souls would be saved in the end, and so he didn't react in a way that maybe you and I would. We have to learn from him. And finally, number four, we can know that we are going to get a fair trial with God. We are going to get a fair trial with God. Understandably, our minds during election season are various judges in other positions, but the judge that we should be most concerned about is the judge of the universe. Isaiah 33, verse 22, For the Lord is our judge, the Lord is our lawgiver, the Lord is our king. He will save us. This judge is just and fair. He's not someone that is, is going to railroad us like the Sanhedrin did. And that can either intimidate us, the fact that Jesus is just and fair, or it can comfort us. Are we a denier like Peter? Are we false accusers like the Jews? Are we snarlers when things are said falsely about us? Or are we like Jesus? Are we like our Lord and Master? Are you a Christian this morning? If not, will you consider what Jesus went through for you? Yes, he endured the crucifixion. Yes, he endured a terrible scourging. But he also endured a kangaroo court, a terrible mockery of a trial. Through faith, repentance, confession, water baptism, you can come into contact with that blood that Jesus shed upon the cross for you and for me. To have your sins washed away, to walk in newness of life. But perhaps you are a Christian. Maybe you have forgotten what Jesus has done for you. Make that right as well. If there's anything that we can do for you this morning, we ask that you come as we stand and as we sing. I have decided